Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 John chapter 2. So near the end of the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I'd like us to look at 1st John. I know some of you are thinking that the series was a four-part series, and I probably created the confusion on that because I said there's four main ideas, uh, but I wanted to preach a fifth message to sort of bring it all together and make certain that our focus uh, is turned in the proper direction. The author of Amazing Grace, as he was coming to the end of his life, uh, made the statement, uh, often quoted, so anytime that's the case, it sort of gets uh, can get twisted in it, but the version of it that I am most familiar with says this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's the truth that I would like to zero in on for us this morning, particularly that Christ is a great Savior. Look at 1 John chapter 2. I'd like to read verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. What John's doing here, he's writing a letter, the the whole letter, the sort of central theme of the letter, is to help them have a confidence in the salvation that comes through Christ. Sometimes... Unfortunately, the letter gets turned a little bit and people preach it in a way that causes people to doubt their salvation. Uh, The whole point of the book is really intended to provide assurance of salvation, that these things are true of the work of salvation that God has done. And, And so in the first chapter, John has been addressing the issue of a a professing believer's relationship to sin. If I could just summarize it, it'd be this way, that that those who are truly born again are sin-confessing people, not sin-denying people. If you deny sin, he gives a very strong kind of warning that you're actually calling God a liar, that you're not in the light. If you've actually come to Christ, you don't have a blind eye to your sin, you're fully aware of your sin. That's why you can say, I'm a great sinner. Right, and he, and he then directs us to the resource at the end of chapter one. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now he turns the question, because here's the, the, the thing that someone might incorrectly conclude. Well, if, if, uh, sin is that easily taken care of, then do I even have to worry about it? And so he starts chapter two by saying, listen, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin, that you may not sin. But if you do, you have an advocate. So, so those, those concepts, those ideas are what I'd like to zero in and as a way to sort of wrap up this series on dealing with difficult sins that, that we should not, we should not ever become comfortable or complacent with our sin, 
right? The word of God is given to us that we may not sin. We, we can never get comfortable or complacent about our sin, but also we should never feel defeated about our sin. We have an advocate with the Father. And so I want to take some time to unpack that a little bit. Look at the beginning of verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So, so here's what I'd say in terms, and we're going to look at a couple other spots in the book to help drive this home. But, but um, you know, when, when we have a stubborn battle with sin, it, it can at times, it, uh, and I said comfortable or complacent, right? So, so obviously becoming comfortable with our sin is sort of like just sort of letting, letting us, we're just going to live with it, right? I'm never going to solve this. It's just always going to be a part of my life. I'm just, I'm going to stop worrying about it, right? It's just, it's just the way it is, right? That's sort of like the, you know, that's the buzzword of our day. But it is what it is. It is what it is. And we just sort of resign ourselves to this. We, we actually start to get comfortable with the fact that this sin problem is always going to be a part of our lives. And if we actually are comfortable with it, then we start to get complacent. We're, we're actually sort of satisfied with it. Right? We're, we've, we've made peace with it. But look at the text. It says that you may not sin. Now, the reality is until we see Christ, we will not win entirely the fight with sin. Because it's not until then that the culmination of God's work will be completed in us. In, Go to chapter 3 and just look at the first part of the chapter so you can see that what I'm saying is not of my imagination, but is grounded in what God has said. Look at chapter 3, beginning verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is, and everyone that has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So stop and think of what John's saying there. We are children, but we're not yet what we will be. That's what I mean by until you are what you will be, there's always going to be a fight with sin. There's always going to be a problem with sin in your life. You're never going to reach a state this side of glorification where sin is not a real issue. But you can't accept that as permission to feel comfortable in sin, right? Because think about what he says. We know what we'll be like, and he that has this hope in him, look at verse three again, purifies himself just as he is pure. That is, if you actually understand what God's intention for you and, and that is that you're going to be like Jesus Christ in his 
perfection and purity, you have that hope in you, then here's the impact it has on you now. You purify yourself. You don't get comfortable with sin. You pursue the purity of Christ. You will never attain it, right? So, so one way I heard it said a long time ago is, right, our, our grasp, when we take hold of something, right? Our grasp will be always outside of our reach, but we're always reaching for it, right? I know I can't be sinlessly perfect in this life, but that doesn't mean, so hey, let's have a blast. It means I'm still supposed to pursue Christ because I know what God's desire for my life is. I know what God's intention is. And I can't get comfortable short of that. I can't be complacent. I should, I should recognize what God intends for me. So I, I must never, you must never get comfortable or complacent with sin because it's contrary to God's will. God revealed his word. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Why? Because God intends to make us like Christ because we're his children. And that's what he intends to do for us. It's contrary to the, the will of God, God's will for you. But, but look also in verse three, it's contrary to Christ's work. Look at, look at verse five of chapter three. The he here is Jesus. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Drop down to verse 8. Look at the second part of the verse. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. All right? So, so sin should not sit comfortably in your life because the whole point of Christ coming into the world was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to put away sins. So if I've turned to trust in Jesus Christ and, and own him as my Lord and Savior, and I know what he came to do and what he wants to accomplish, then, then that's where my heart must be going, right? So, so if, if this stubborn sin with which you've been fighting starts to feel comfortable and, and you're just going to tolerate it, you're not just surrendering, you're actually betraying Christ because Christ came to put it to death, to destroy it. It is not a neutral thing. It's actually radically opposed to Christ. So, so it's, it's going to be there and there's going to be a fight, but it's, it's not like you're going to surrender your home to the cockroaches. Right? You're not just going to go, well, whatever. You know, we got a little, we got a little termite problem. You're going to realize that this is the work of the devil that Christ came to destroy. Your heart allegiance is with Jesus. It can't get comfortable with sin. Notice now verses eight and nine of chapter 
3, because it's also contrary to the believer's nature. I'm sorry, 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So here's what John does in this, the, these verses. He anchors the, the radical nature of the new birth as the, the basis for denying a life of habitual practice of unrighteousness. Right? It's, it, it cannot be comfortable. It cannot, it cannot become something that is, uh, is the, the believer embraces in any way. Right? Because what God began in the believer, Philippians 1 6 says, he will continue until the day of Christ. And I use that verse because that's what the whole point about his seed is in you. God began it. Anyone who's born of God, God began a work by giving you a new nature, a new heart, and he began that work. He's going to continue it until the day of Christ. He's going to bring it to completion. Right? And, and because he's done that work in you, you, you actually cannot live a life surrendered to sin and comfortable and complacent about it. Because God began something and he's going to continue it. But also we saw a couple weeks ago in Galatians 5 that the spirit, if he indwells you, is going to go to battle against the flesh. There's going to be a fight. They're in opposition to one another. And the spirit is not going to surrender the child of God to the devil. He's not going to surrender in the fight against the flesh. So, so it's just not possible for a true believer to live perpetually comfortable with the presence and practice of sin. There's, there's going to be a work of God to move that person toward glorification, and there's going to be a fight by the Spirit against it. Now, let me just be careful. When I, I want to make sure you understand my point. If the Spirit is fighting while you are engaged in sin, then by that definition, you can't be comfortable in it. Right? If the Spirit is fighting against the sin in your life, you actually can't be complacent. You can be under conviction. You can, you can be struggling. You can feel like you're barely keeping your nose above the water. Right? All of those are very different than being comfortable or complacent. That you basically have said, hey, you know, this is just a part of my life. It's who I am. It's what I want. I mean, it's just, there's nothing I can do about it. It is what it is. If, if God has given you new life in Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in you, then what it is is contrary to your new nature. 
and it will never mix. Right? It, it won't. It won't sit comfortably. There will always be a fight happening within your soul. Now, you may have, you may have allowed yourself to become somewhat callous to that conviction. Right? You might be. I'm using languages, word wording of scripture. That would be Ephesians 4. It might be that you've started to become sluggish or dull of hearing, like Hebrews chapter 5 says. It's possible that you have grieved the Spirit or quenched some of His work in your life. So, so the reality of it is, the, and this is probably not a great analogy, but the, the warning system its capacities might be diminished because of what you've done to your conscience, but it is not inoperable because it's not ultimately dependent on your conscience. It's dependent on the work of God in you. Right? Look at, look at again in verse nine. It doesn't say no one who is born of God practices sin because that person is so powerful. Right, It is because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Something of God's work in you, the production of a new nature by the power of the Spirit through the word, that actually is the new you. Right, You, you are a new person in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? So it just, it just cannot be that you would end up comfortable and complacent about your sin. Right? At, at, at points, right? We can, we can fall headlong into our path of disobedience, and it can seem that way, but here's the gracious, loving mercy of God. He's going to pick us up out of the miry pit and set our feet on the solid rock because he began a good work, and he is going to continue it until the day of Christ. Right? Those those truths that sometimes we sing, you know, about he will hold me fast, right? We need to understand that, that draw, that's drawing out of the scriptures about what God's commitment to his people is, that he is able to make you stand. He will present you faultless before the throne. It is God who's at work in you. Right, so, so here's, here's the first part of what I want to talk about, right? From, from 2-1, uh, we, we must never become comfortable or complacent of our sin. It's contrary to God's will for us. It's contrary to Christ's work. And it's also contrary to the believer's nature, right? You, you are not, right? You are not trapped in your sin. Okay, and I, there's limitations to all illustrations, but I mean, 
probably 40 some years ago, I, 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 I heard one that from time to time has resonated with me. Right? So, so Houdini was a great escape artist. Right, so one time he was put inside a jail cell and was trying to get out of it, and he could never get it done. And, and then the guy on the outside walked up and just sort of pulled the door. He had spent all of his time trying to unlock a lock that was already unlocked. Right, He had a radical misconception of his situation, and therefore he could not escape from it. And here's the thing I'd say to you is, is that you might feel trapped in your sin and think it's inescapable and unavoidable and that's just the way it is. It's just going to be. And here's, here's what I'm telling you based on the word of God. It's not. Right? It is not. You are not trapped. It is not unescapable. It is not so unique, which is doesn't even need a so before it. It's not unique to you because there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to men, right? But God is faithful who will with it provide a way of escape. It comes down to, do we take the word of God as true? Do we believe what God intends to do in his people? Do we believe that Christ's appearance to destroy the work of the devil is actually effective? Or are you the exception and Jesus isn't quite strong enough to beat the devil in your life? Do you think God's not quite faithful because in this particular case, you have a temptation which is not common to all and there actually is no way of escape? I, mean, I, I could keep piling them up, but I think you get the point. There comes a point in our battle with stubborn sin, trying to deal with those difficult sins, where it is going to be a trust battle. Do I trust what God says about this more than what I am thinking? Do I believe God? And am I going to take God's side in this so that I never get comfortable with the sin struggle, never get complacent about it? I never, I never give up because the, the reality of it is uh, even though we hate the struggle, we hate the fight, and we should hate the sin, there is a part of all of this that God is orchestrating for the good of molding and shaping Christ-likeness in us. So, so, so don't surrender any portion of your life to sin. Don't, 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 don't let it move in and Take up the guest room of your life, right? It needs to be driven out. It needs to be removed. Do not, do not surrender to it. And that's what we've been talking about over the last four weeks. So make it difficult to sin. 
do so by removing opportunities to temptation and building in obstacles to the sin. Right? So, so I don't want to settle with it, so I'm going to find, as I look at my life, those places where I have been susceptible to temptation, and I'm going to remove the opportunities. And, and in those places where I find myself very weak in my, my resistance to it, I'm going to build in obstacles to make it harder to make sinful choices. Right, that was the first message. Second, building biblical resistance through the word of God, that I need to saturate my life with God's word, that it's the truth of God which sanctifies. Remember Jesus, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Okay, so, so I need to saturate my mind and heart with the word of God and meditate in it day and night. And I need to specifically look to the word of God for answers to the very issues about which I'm struggling. What is the issue and what are the things that contribute to it? Right? So I, I take God's word and I read it and I study it and I meditate on it. And if you meditate on enough, it will actually find its lodging in your heart. You'll, you'll mesmerize it, right? You'll meditate on it so much you've memorized it because you've thought about this truth. You've thought about this truth and what this truth means and where does it show up in my life and what kind of responses should it produce and, and how should I look at things? Right, so, so you're absorbing God's word because you are saturating your mind and heart with it. And that's the preparation for the fight. And again, I, I used, uh, I used, I mentioned Jesus in Matthew 4. And if you've, if you've never, I mean, I don't often make plugs for sermon series, but I'm going to make one here. Okay. So I preached, I think a three or four sermon series from Matthew 4 four on Jesus when he faced temptation. Okay, and, and the reason I mention it here is because when Jesus was being tested by the devil, his answer in each test came from the word of God. And it was the reason why he would not surrender to the sin. Right? So turn this stone into bread. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. So his quotation of Deuteronomy was the answer to Satan about why he wouldn't do it. So, so think about that. The word of God was, was creating resistance to the temptation. That's why, that's why we're in it. Now think about this, and, I, and you need to think carefully about it. Because here's what you might be going, well, well, I mean, Jesus is God. He wrote it. He knows what it says, right? But Jesus is operating as the God-man. And while the mystery of the incarnation is, is profound, we, we need to say he never stopped being God, right? You, you, he's fully God, fully man. But in his humanity, he was growing and learning like we do. That's what Luke says, right? He grew in knowledge and wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. 
So just think about it. Like when Jesus was a toddler, he wasn't walking around quoting, you know, from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi. He had to learn it. He went to synagogue, heard the reading of scripture. He was internalizing God's word. He was doing exactly what you and I have to do. He wasn't all of a sudden going, well, I'm in a temptation. Let me reach over into the Logos part, pull out a verse I've never heard, never read, never anything. And I'm, this, this is your answer, Satan. No, Jesus was doing exactly what we're supposed to do. He had meditated on the word of God because that's the point, isn't it? I mean, you're, you've, you're being asked to turn a stone into bread and your answer is man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the father. You know, all of a sudden you're, you're doing this. He's understanding a truth. And here's the truth that, that God is more important than my physical needs. Right? That, cause that's the truth in that verse. Man does not live by bread alone. That is, you have a kind of life that is greater than your physical life. Jesus meditated on that and had the sword of the spirit ready to answer Satan. Right? He knew what it said, understood what it meant, and actually used it the right way. Right. And sometimes what we've made the mistake of is like, we just like do random verses that have nothing to do with it and figure the devil's going to run away because we quoted a verse. And I said a couple weeks ago, that's obviously not the case because the next temptation, guess who quotes a verse? Satan does. So he's not afraid of the Bible. He will actually quote the Bible wrongly if it'll serve his purposes. So you need to know what it says, understand what it means so that you can use it the right way against Satan's devices, right? So so build resistance through the word of God. If, and probably you could say when, you sin, deal with it quickly and correctly. Right, and the two anchors I put there were The spirit is already fighting. So he's going to be convicting you about your sin. Respond as soon as you are aware of it. Don't buy the lie that you just need to ride out the ride of this failure. And you need to sit and soak in your failure for a few days. Because that's not coming from God. There's no way... The, the father in the prodigal son story was thinking, well, I just hope he rots in that pig pen for a couple of days just to understand what a mess he's made. Now the father was like, come home, right? The spirit is already fighting and the father is ready to forgive. So, so rapid, right? Response, deal with it, deal with it. The longer you delay, the deeper the hooks get into you. Right? The longer you put it off, the, the more lag there is in your soul because the one you are resisting is God. But the minute you feel conviction, 
God has sent the note to you. Come home. Come home. And the longer you delay, the more you are draining your strength and draining that relationship in a way that's going to leave deeper wounds and scars. Turn and turn quickly because the Father's ready to forgive. And then, if necessary, the fourth point was establish appropriate accountability. We need encouragement because sometimes we can't see as clearly as we ought to see because sin is deceptive. And sometimes we're not feeling what we ought to be feeling because sin has had a hardening effect on us. And we need people to point out God's word to us, to help us to see clearly and to, to, to have right affections. And that's why God's given us a, 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 an assembly, a congregation of people to help each other. So don't get comfortable. Don't get complacent. And some of you, you've been here, this is your fifth sermon right? And, I, and the length of the couple of these sermons, it might be like your sixth or seventh, the way we've been squeezing them in. And you're still hanging on, right? You're, you're still thinking, I don't think I can do this. I'm not sure I'm willing to own this. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to, to take the step it might take to try to change because I've tried before and failed, right? And if you're saying this morning, I've tried before and failed, so I'm not sure I can try again. You are saying that you've become comfortable. You're saying the pain of trying to change is greater than the pain I'm presently experiencing. I'd rather have it here. Okay, you've become complacent about it. You've thought, it's not that bad, right? It's not so bad that I have to change. I can, I can make it, right? So, so I, I'm just trying to urge you, if you're still hanging on to some stubborn sin or you're not ready to go after the fight with some difficult sin, Realize what your heart is saying. Okay, that's all I'm trying to do right now is hold up the mirror to you. Because your heart is saying, I'm actually comfortable right here. If I have to end up confessing my anger and my pride to my spouse or to my kids, I, I'm not I don't, I just want to, I know what's going to happen. I'm going I'm to do that and then I'm going to blow up again next week and I'm going to just like, ah, it'd just be easier just to shut up and just sort of ride it out. Or if I say I'm going to do this X, Y, or Z, then, you know, and I fail, then I'm going to look like an idiot or I'm going to look worse or it's going to be, I just, I just can't do it. Then you've become comfortable and complacent about it. And I'm telling you, that's not God's will. That's not why Jesus came. And if you know Christ, you're never actually going to get comfortable there. You're not. Because God loves you too much to let you 
get comfortable there. He gave his son so that you could break away from there. Don't, don't ride with the current of sin. Recognize God's plan is better and greater. And that leads me to verse, back in chapter 2, verse 1, to the second major truth here. We must never get comfortable or complacent with our sin, but also we should never feel defeated by our sin. Why? Look at verse 1. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, so so here's the first part of this. We have an advocate. The word that's used here is the same Greek word that John, the Apostle John, uses in his gospel for the comforter that comes, right? And and in a legal context, it's usually identified with someone who's like a defense counsel or attorney, right? So, so in this case, I think advocate is a good translation for it. You are in a scenario where you have sinned and you need representation, and you have it. You have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's, before we look at that advocacy, let's notice the qualifications that he identifies him with. And he, and, and again, this might glide past us, right? The fact that, that, that Jesus is described the way he is, but these all have significance, I think, right? Uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous combines into that simple statement the fact of his full humanity, that's Jesus, right? That's his human name. And and I know it's a little theologically nitpicky, but it's important for us to remember, right? Because when you would talk about the Son of God, say, back in, in Genesis, you wouldn't call him Jesus, right? Because remember... All the way up in Matthew 1, the child that's going to be born of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the name given to the Son of God in his full humanity, full deity. It's his incarnational name when he became human. Right? And, and, and we can sometimes glide across that and not recognize that, that this is, especially in this context, right? Cause I think if you read 1 John 2 and you hear, we have an advocate, you should hear that again, say the backdrop of Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about it being necessary for the Son of God to become fully human so that he might be able to, through death, defeat the power of the devil and become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look what chapter 2, verse 2 talks about. He, is, he himself is the propitiation, right? So this name Jesus is capturing the fact that the, the God-man, the Son of God, could become, we'll see in a moment, the atonement, the propitiation for our sins. 
that, that he is able to be our advocate because he can identify with us in our humanity and bore our sins in his body on the tree. Obviously, Christ refers to his official capacity as redeemer, the one sent from God to fulfill the promises and righteous reveals the absolute purity of his character. If you go back, you go back from Jesus all the way down the priestly line, there wasn't one of them that could be described as the righteous. They were all sinners. They had to, in the words of Hebrews, they had to offer up sacrifice first for himself, then for the people. Because they were not the righteous. They always had to atone for their own sin before they can bring an offering for anybody else's sin. But not Jesus. Jesus is perfectly righteous. There was no sin in him. His sacrifice had nothing to do with sin that he committed. It was only the sins of others. He is perfect in his righteousness. So when our advocate stands before the Father, he can identify with us perfectly in our humanity. He has carried out the work of the anointed one of the Father, and he is perfectly righteous. There is no sin in him, and he is our substitute and our representative, and we are safe in him. Notice what's going on here in terms of him being an advocate. That's the language, I think, of intercessor or mediator. First Timothy 2 makes it clear that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So between us and God, there's only Christ. And I had this, actually, I was listening to Joel this morning. He said they have church and then they have tea time. And I was thought, oh, that'd be pretty cool. You know, go to church and go play golf. That's what I was saying, right? That's the T I think about. But anyway, just, I mean, just, just yesterday, I'm playing in a, a golf event, and the guy who's on my team, but a partner playing terribly, and all of a sudden he looks across at me and goes, starts like trying to offer a confession because he knows I'm a pastor. And the other guy on the other team goes, So, like, can you, can you work out a confession for him? And I said, I said, that's not the way it works. So you're thinking, you're thinking something totally different because we can go straight to God and not through some man other than Jesus, right? So, so here I'm preaching on the 17th hole to these guys, but the reality of it is that's lots of people like to think, right? Okay, you know, I got to get a confession. I got somebody who's going to absolve me and all that. Here's what this text The scriptures are very clear, right? That Jesus is the only mediator. It's not Jesus plus some priests. It's not Jesus plus Mary. It's Jesus. Because he's the advocate. He's fully sufficient for it. We don't need any other. We can run to God through Christ because he has made the way open for us. 
and it's with the Father, right? It's, it's really, it's almost literally in the presence of the Father. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. If I could fill that out for a moment with, with stuff from Hebrews that I've already been talking about, it says that he's a priest who sympathizes with our weakness, right? So here you are struggling with a stubborn sin. You feel like you're just not, you're not making it. You're not overcoming it. You're not strong enough. You're a failure with regard to this sin. You're not worthy of all this stuff. And, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not denying any of that. There's not a one of us in here worthy of salvation. Not a one of us in here strong enough to overcome our sin on our own. The whole point is if we're looking at ourselves, that's the problem. I have an advocate with the Father. I'm supposed to look to him. And you know what I hear the scriptures say? He is one who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Right? He, he actually has a heart for us. And we, if I just fill it in why that's the case, right? He shares our humanity so he understands its frailty. Do you realize the divine nature has never gotten tired? He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. Not one thing diminishes the power of God. Right? He, he never goes, whew, that was a workout. But you know what we find Jesus doing? He's so tired, he falls asleep in the hull of a boat that's in the midst of a storm. God never experienced that. But Jesus, the human nature, the person via his human nature experienced that. He understands what it's like to be tired, to be weak. You ever read the Gospels? See him walking along the road carrying his cross and he stumbles and falls under the weight of it? Jesus understands our frailty. That's why he's sympathetic toward us in the midst of our temptations and troubles. He faced our temptations so he understands its power. Okay, he's without sin, but... He faced temptation and never conceded to it. So you could argue he faced it more powerfully than you ever will because you've caved. All the pressure in the hose never broke through on him. So he understands the fullness of it, right? He realizes what the pressure of temptation is because he faced it and he withstood it. So he understands when you're facing what you feel to be overwhelming pressure to sin. You can't read the Gospels and not know that Jesus has seen our flaws. So he understands our needs. I mean, he lived for 33 years among sinful people. He walked side by side with them. He saw them 
in, in, the, in the full gamut of sin from, from the prostitute possessed by demons to the Pharisees possessed by their self-righteousness. He saw it all. So he knows what our flaws are. So he can be sympathetic to those weaknesses. Right? He, he has seen those things and understood them. And the scriptures are clear that he suffered for our sins. So he understands obedience empowered by faith. Right? Because Hebrews says that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Right? The experience of obedience in the face of enormous suffering as in the, right in the context, as he cried out with loud prayers and tears that he might be delivered from death. So he knows and understands what it means to obey God all the way to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Right? That's who you're coming to. Right? And there's a world of difference between thinking Jesus is, is up in heaven going, okay, I'll bail you out one more time. And thinking he's there as an advocate who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a world of difference between those two. Because if you're going, well, I got to go to Jesus again, man, he's going to be so disappointed. I mean, he's just like, what? And, and if you think Jesus is here going, you again? All right, I'll bail you out this time. And you don't understand the advocate we have. You don't understand the heart of the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. You don't understand how much he wants to see you be set free from the works of the devil. How much he wants to see you be returned to a relationship of joy of his salvation. His heart longs for that for you. He is waiting for you. And he is advocating for you. Notice verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. So, so we shouldn't be defeated, feel defeated. We have an advocate and he has made atonement. The word propitiation is a good word. I, I think it's good that our translation keeps it in it. Uh, because it is dealing with the nature of sin as bringing condemnation and wrath, and that wrath being removed and satisfied. And here's what you need to think, all right? Jesus Christ, with regard to my sin, has, has made propitiation for it so that God's stance toward me is not one of wrath and condemnation and judgment, right? That, that I, man, 
I, I've said it before. I, mean, I love third verse of it as well. I mean, everyone's got their favorite verses of songs. Third verse of that song, I I often have a hard time singing without tears, even though it's probably awkward English because if someone's not taking the whole verse right, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. It's like okay, that that doesn't fit. But that's why there's the dashes in there, right? The glorious thought is my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. I mean, that there is not a sin that I have committed, am committing, or will commit that is not nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Right? So when I struggle with a sin and that weight of that sin hits me, what I have to immediately recognize is this, is that I have not now put myself in a place of condemnation. I didn't all of a sudden get kicked outside of God's family. I haven't all of a sudden become guilty before the judgment seat of God. No, my sin's been covered by the blood of Christ. It's him that is my propitiation. The very one who is advocating for me bore all the wrath of God against my sin it will ever bear. There's not one ounce of God's wrath left for me. He poured the whole cup out on himself. I will never I will never endure the wrath of God for my sin. So why would I hesitate to run to him? Right? I'm not, I'm not running from him. I should be running to him because he himself is my propitiation. He's the one who bore it all. And the only accuser that's pointing his finger at me is the devil. It's not Jesus. It's not the Father. I mean, as we saw in Romans 8, right? Who can lay a charge against God's chosen? It's God who justifies. It's Christ who intercedes. So, So my sin shouldn't, when I fail God, I shouldn't feel defeated by that. It shouldn't be like, oh, man, I just stepped outside of God's grace and now I'm going to bear the consequences of this as God's wrath is poured out on me. I better do something to try and balance out the scale. I better try and find a way to even this out. Right? I, I just don't feel I can come to God right now because I don't have my life squared away. I mean, all of that stuff are just flat out lies that either the devil or our pride are telling us. I mean, Jesus stands ready not to defeat your sin. He already defeated it. But to work in you the fruit of his victory. To help you grow up into what he's purchased for you to help you feel at home at the Father's feet like you ought to because the Father loves you. 
right? That's what Jesus is at work to do. And sin stands opposed to that and should not become something that hangs over us like a cloud. We have to believe the promises of God. We have to recognize the glory of what he's done for us. It's full and it's free and it's in Christ. So here's here's what I'd say to you in terms of trying to draw this in, right? If, if you're still fighting the fight or maybe you're not sure you're going to get in the fight, first thing is make sure you focus on the Savior more than your sin. You are a great sinner. The only tweak I'd make to Newton's comment is he's a greater Savior. Right? He's a better Savior than you are a sinner. His mercy is more. So don't get, don't get, don't get preoccupied with your sin. Get your heart full of the Savior. Because that's ultimately the key anyway. A, a stronger yes to Jesus is what enables a no to sin. You're not going to win the fight by just learning how to say no better. You're only going to win the fight if you're saying yes more to Christ. Look over to chapter 4 and verse 10. Focus on the Savior more than your sin. Second, remember that God loves you. All right, and this ties to verse 2 by the saying that, look at, look at 4.10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so here's, and I, I'd love to unpack this more. I, I just honestly can't because it's, it's vitally important, but, but big, all right? So think about this way. I'm the sinner. I've sinned against God. God rightly, rightly has condemnation on my sin and me as a sinner, all right? But here's what I don't want to think. God doesn't love me. Because here's the amazing thing. He loved, so he sent the son to be the propitiation. Right? So, so at the same time, God loved me, but actually was full of wrath against me because of my sin. That's why we saw in Ephesians 2, we were by nature the children of wrath before we came. Right, so, so here I am, the sinner, both the object of God's love and of his judgment, but his love moves him to send his son to be the propitiation for my sin so that all of that wrath is removed. Right, so, so here's the point. Is don't think this. Don't think that God didn't love you before the propitiation. Somehow the propitiation made you lovable. No, God loved us. That's why he sent his son to die for us. The the sacrifice of Christ flowed from the love of God for us. So, So here's the reality. Now I think about the nature of my sin and I think God can't love me. I mean, I keep messing up. I keep sinning. And here I'd say, you know what? You know what? When you were totally immersed in your sin and hostile against God, 
when you hated him, you know what he did? He loved you. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. He's made you his child. Don't ever think he hates you. Don't ever think that he is going to condemn you someday because Jesus has atoned for it. God loves you. God loves you. I don't care how messy the sin is. I don't care how long it's been in your life. I don't care how deep it is. God loves you. And he wants you to come to him. He loves you with a love that is so costly, Jesus died. It's not a passing, fleeting feeling by God. It's deep in his heart, his eternal counsel. He loves you. Turn to him. Run from your sin to Christ. Look at chapter five, verse four. Third thing you've got to focus on and remember is that if you're in Christ, don't forget that you're on the winning side. Look at 5.4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so you can, you can feel desperate and defeated at times in the midst of your sin. But that's when you need to preach the truth of God. Everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. If you're in Christ, you will not end up on the losing side. Right? It might, it might, it might feel like the particular battle that you're in is not looking very optimistic and, and there's trouble and there's, this has been a long, long fight and there's lots of seeming casualties, but the war has been won. Christ is going to win. And if you're Christ, you are going to be included in his victory. The battle is not going to be lost. Trust Jesus. Have confidence in him to keep his promise. And faith in Christ will overcome. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Christ is our advocate. He's our captain. He's, he's everything, all we need. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent him to be the propitiation for our sin. When we could not atone for our sin, Christ did. When, when there was nothing for us to offer to pay for our penalty or, or please you with works of righteousness, all those were filthy rags, but Jesus Christ, the righteous, conquered sin and death. Lord, I pray that you might take this time, these few weeks of looking at these truths and bring conviction where it needs to be, but also bring confidence where it needs to be. Confidence not in the flesh, or in ourselves, but in the power of the gospel 
and in the Redeemer, the one who is our great high priest, and in your power to give life. Lord, help us not to be hearers that just turn away and go on with life. Help us to respond in faith with the amen of our heart and soul to your truth. And then the step of obedience, whatever that might be, to put it into practice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.